we're heading again to the book of Acts this morning. Uh, Last week, Andrew took us through the incredible revival that occurred in Ephesus. And uh, we find that in Acts chapter 19. It was the starting point of uh, Paul's third missionary journey um, that really under the leading and the kairos time of the Holy Spirit, um, he went to Ephesus and um, indeed to the surroundings of Asia Minor. And really the region, the whole region was just impacted phenomenally for the gospel of Jesus. And Paul stayed there for two years ministering to the people there. And um, as we read last week, they experienced extraordinary miracles, not just ordinary ones, multiple salvations, people that were delivered and set free from the occult and lives just completely turned around. And um, that section of scripture um, finishes off or sums up with these words in uh, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so today we're going to pick up from this incredible high point um, of this revival in Ephesus and move on to uh, verse 21 of uh, chapter 19. So just to give you a little bit of background, um, Paul has again been paying attention to the Holy Spirit. We see this throughout his ministry, that he's really guided by what the Spirit is saying to him. And so he starts to make plans to leave Ephesus after this two-year period. And the church is more established there, obviously. And he plans to eventually head towards Jerusalem. Um, But first, he he is going to head back to Macedonia and and Achaia, which we might know of as Greece. And uh, I have to say, I don't know about you, but I hear all of these names in Acts and I have to get out some kind of biblical atlas and work out where on earth they're talking about. So I did that this week. Um, I'm a little bit geographically challenged, both in map following and working out where things are in the world. Um, And it was helpful for me because, in fact, Um, heading towards Macedonia and Greece was definitely not on the way to Jerusalem. So there was an express purpose uh, for which Paul was heading in that direction, led by the Holy Spirit. Um, For those of you who don't know, the churches in Macedonia were Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica, names that are all familiar to us from his um, previous missionary journeys, and then on to Greece or Achaia, um, and you have Corinth there. So that's the places that he's planning to visit And although it doesn't say a lot in Acts, when we read some of uh, Paul's other letters, we know that there are two purposes for him traveling back round to these regions before heading back to Jerusalem. One is to encourage the believers there. And the second is that the church in Jerusalem is um, doing it tough. And uh, they're struggling. There's been a famine in the area. They're still experiencing significant persecution. And so Paul is gathering funds from these newer, um, younger churches from around the region to take back an offering and a love gift to the believers in Jerusalem. And so here we are. Paul is just getting ready to move on from this high point to head on in this journey with the leading and um, the, um, the guidance of the Holy Spirit after this significant season of breakthrough Um, and the gospel spreading. And let's pick it up in verse 23 of chapter 19. About that time, there arose no little disturbance according to um, concerning the way. No little disturbance concerning the way. I love how Luke phrases that. 
it means that stuff was going down. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had made silver shrines for Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Again, no little business, a lot of business. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods that are made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours will come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theatres, dragging with them followers and companions of Paul. When things head in this kind of direction so suddenly, when there's confusion and mayhem and anxiety, it can be hard to make sense of it. There's been this incredible high moment and revival breaking out in Ephesus. And all of a sudden that turns to confusion and, and rage. I think that if this had been in the modern day, it surely would have, this riot would surely have made the headlines and attracted much social media commentary on both sides. Today in Ephesus the silversmiths' trades union took to the streets in angry protest due to loss of wages. The decline in business blamed on the Jesus revival that was sweeping through Ephesus and surrounding Asia for two years. The uproar attracted many onlookers with no links to the trade union, but rather people just simply looking for a fight. For over two, year, two hours, sorry, the, the enraged crowds chanted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, as scuffles broke out with the authorities. Two Christian leaders were seriously injured as the rabble dragged them through the streets. Authorities, in an attempt to restore order and placate the crowds, affirmed Artemis as the true goddess of Ephesus. Reports indicate that Paul, the apostle, hid from view with grave fears held for his safety in the rabble. The question on everyone's lips, does this spell the end of the way in the region? From revival to riots, from optimism to uproar. In these moments, it can be hard to make sense of it. Has God stopped accomplishing his plans? Will his word continue to prevail after all? What will become of the church of Jesus Christ? In 1998, pre-children, Justin took a trip of a lifetime to Nepal with a friend to trek. When he came home, he tried to describe to me the enormity and the grandeur of the Himalayan mountains it is very hard to capture something quite so awesome and majestic on your camera with just one photo frame. 
And so what he tried to do with his film camera was take multiple consecutive photos of the panorama and the breathtaking views that he saw. And he came home and he printed them out because it was in the days of printing out your photos. And he stuck them together to try and create some sense of the awesomeness of what he had seen. It helped in some ways for me to get a bit of a sense of where he'd been walking for three weeks and the altitude that he had climbed. Now you don't, of course, have to take a lot of photos and stick them all together. Instead, all you need is a smartphone and a steady hand and you just allow the little arrow to follow around to be able to try and capture what sometimes just one snapshot, one photograph just cannot do. I use this illustration this morning to try and paint a picture for you. What do we do in a moment like this in the church in Ephesus when revival seems to have given way to rioting? And this morning I want to suggest to you that sometimes we need to pan the camera to capture the true breadth of the panorama of God's church and to remember that we are caught up in something much bigger than any one single snapshot or moment in time can ever accurately capture. To remember that God is faithful, that he does what he says he will do, even in the unexpected, and that he plays the long game, that he is always at work accomplishing his purposes on the earth in and through his people, Even when we can't see it, he's working. I think if we're honest, many of us would identify with finding ourselves in another moment of human history where we may feel discouraged, disheartened, anxious, even fearful as God's people, as his church. In the middle of an uproar, it is all too easy to get caught up in the frame of the moment that we find ourselves in. Maybe it's today's headlines or the passing of a parliamentary bill or a riot or a global pandemic and lockdowns. And we find ourselves asking, has God stopped accomplishing his plans and purposes? Is his word continuing to prevail in every season? What will become? of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we anchor ourselves once again? How do we recapture and remember the bigger picture? We take a panorama. So as we take in the full view, the panorama of the breadth of who our God is this morning, first we remember that God established for himself a people who were set apart, the tribes, the people of Israel, And we get to see, documented in Scripture, the highs and the lows, the successes and the failures, the obedience and the disobedience. And we get to see the faithful purposes of God prevail through it all. There are over 300 prophetic promises in the Old Testament spanning thousands of years declaring the coming of the Messiah from amongst God's people. So again, as we pan around, we remember that he promised a one who would come and bring salvation and deliverance. And dotted through 
that Old Testament record of that part of God's redemption history through his people. He also includes the prophetic references for us about the inclusion of the Gentiles, of the outsiders. And as Psalm 86 describes it, that all nations would come to him and worship him and glorify his name. This is an out-of-the-box statement in ancient Israel because their experience of other nations um, as, was as outsiders, as enemies, as even dangerous. But in our panorama, we do pay attention to that because it's important later. And so we pan around a little bit more and we remember God is faithful and his purposes prevail as we remember that he fulfilled all of his prophetic promises about the coming Messiah to the letter. He sent his son, the Christ, Jesus. God in human flesh, born as a Jew, raised in the ways and the culture of Israel. And we remember that God's plan is prevailing and continuing to unfold. The men and women that Jesus gathered around himself were also fellow Jews. And not only that, but of his 12 closest disciples, with possibly the exception of Judas, they were all Galileans. They had the same accent. They had the similar upbringing. They were the same small-town people. We remember that the bounds of Jesus' actual ministry was confined to the small geographical area of Israel and that with a few exceptions, he ministered to Jews exclusively and equipped his disciples and followers to minister to their fellow countrymen to proclaim the kingdom. There was no international arm to his ministry, just Jesus, the Son of God, and a group of ordinary Jewish men and women in Israel. And from this seeming smallness, we remember that the breadth of God's redemption plan continued to prevail amongst Roman occupation and religious opposition. And then we remember that Jesus, to the absolute confusion of his disciples, at this high point in his ministry where they have seen signs and wonders and declared that surely he must be the Christ, begins to tell them that he must die. Now, as post-resurrection people, we understand what he was saying, but they did not. And as Jesus hung on the cross, his disciples thought it was the end, that all had been lost, that God's plans had been thwarted. But we remember instead that Jesus hung there to pay the price for our sin, to redeem us, to set us free, and to deliver us. And that the plans and purposes of God prophesied centuries before was prevailing and going perfectly. We remember that Jesus conquered death and rose again, confirming that he is who he says he is. And that God is faithful and his purposes prevail even over death. We pan around a little bit more and after his resurrection... Jesus gives his followers a radical and surprising commission. But we remember, we paid attention to the fact that in the Old Testament, Gentiles and all nations was mentioned. And Mark records it this way. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever 
believes is ba- um, and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Matthew, go therefore to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Luke, in Acts 1, Jesus' final words to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And John captures this radical shift in mandate in these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Again, we see and we remember God is faithful to his word and his purposes prevail. Just as Jesus told them it would happen, the Holy Spirit came in power and the multitude of people, pilgrims from many, um, many, many nations sorry, who are in Jerusalem for the purpose of the festival of Pentecost, hear their own native tongue spoken. And they glorify God. And as the Holy Spirit is poured out, this is the moment that the church of Jesus Christ is born. And finally, we pan around to Acts. And we see the gospel of Christ spread through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus commissioned in the highs and the lows in the unity and the bitter disagreements, in the radical breakthroughs and the external opposition, in the revivals and the riots. And we remember that God is faithful and his purposes prevail in every season and circumstance. The ongoing growth of the church of Jesus Christ through every season of time is absolutely miraculous. And it is sovereignly purposed and supernaturally powered. Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we as God's people, as we finish our panoramic view, we even get to know how it ends After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What an incredible view. How beautiful and majestic. And how could it possibly be captured by just one single snapshot? Beth, can I invite you back up to the keys, please? And so now we look back at the single frame of that moment in Ephesus again. A riot after a great revival. 
uproar seemingly in place of what had been great promise. How did Paul respond in this moment? How did he react? Did he despair? Was he discouraged? Did he give up or change the plans to which he'd been called? Did he get caught up in the rage and the rioting himself? Did he question if God was still at work in the midst of the mess? Verse 1 of chapter 20 tells us this. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Paul was not distracted by the riots, by this snapshot in the moment of history. He got on with what he had purposed in the spirit to do, what he had been called to do, knowing full well that God is faithful and his purposes prevail even in riots and uproar. And so today, for us, where we are at now, I think there's a challenge for us. How will we choose to view the unfolding purposes of God in the moment of history that we find ourselves in? Be that globally, nationally, locally, or even personally. Will we be distracted by the small view, by the single frame, by the riot and the uproar that surrounds us? Or will we choose to view the incredible panorama of the unchanging, prevailing, faithful word of God? Because that view is truly breathtaking and it anchors us and it reminds us that we are part of something bigger and that we have every reason to hope. This morning, I would like us to take communion together as a declaration of our hope as the people of God, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope that you have your elements prepared. And I've probably caught you a little off guard because it's not quite where we normally do it in our service. But what better way as God's people, as we remember the panorama of who he is, the breadth of what we are a part of as the church of Jesus, than to actually break bread together. And to remember. So can I pray for us? Um, and then we'll take and eat together. Heavenly Father. We are gathered together today as your people. As the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember. That it is you that established your church. It is you that builds your church and it is you that is glorified by your church. Father, we recognize that there are many distractions around us 
uproar and even riots at times, Lord. But Father, this morning afresh, we choose to take in the breathtaking panorama of a history laid out with you. We remember who you are, how big you are, what you have accomplished and what you still promise to accomplish. Lord, would you help us to receive your peace this morning? Lord, where we have been caught up in the snapshot of the moment that we find ourselves in, would you help us regain perspective? Would you calm us down, Holy Spirit, and help us to not get caught up in the uproar? Lord, we declare this morning that because of you, Jesus, we are a people of hope. We remember that your plans and your purposes prevail and that you are faithful to accomplish what you started, Lord. So as we take communion together this morning, we do so declaring the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in his raising to new life, we have been raised to new life. We receive your forgiveness of our sins this morning, knowing that you have made full provision for us. And we declare our hope, our hope rooted, grounded, and founded on you, Jesus. Amen.